The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word if you're able. Turn in your scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 45 to verse 56. <coughs> and you'll find that on page 834. 834 in your pew Bible. Matthew 27, verse 45 to 56. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Amen. Let's pray. Open now your word unto us, Lord God. Minister to us, glorify Christ. May he be shown to be so very beautiful in our eyes that we might delight in him. For we ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the passage before us, as we read it, is one that surely stops us in our tracks. It's a weighty passage. It's a humbling passage. And by it, we are in like measure reminded, of course, of our own terrible sin. And we're also disarmed, disarmed of any pretense to righteousness in ourselves. Because here we witness the Lord, our Lord, the righteous one, 
to use the language of scripture, being made sin. Becoming a curse that he might redeem those who are under the curse. That he might redeem those under the curse by taking away the penalty of their sins and granting unto them a righteousness of complete perfection. We come to the pinnacle of Scripture, I think, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We consider his benefit to sinners and the subsequent calling placed on each of our lives here today. Whether you've received Christ or not, there is a calling placed upon your life. We'll see this in three ways from our text this morning. Verse 45, we'll witness the curses of Jesus' death. The curses of Jesus' death. And we'll spend most of our time this morning on that point. Uh, Then in verse 51, we'll see the effects of Jesus' death. And then in verse 55, the mourners at Jesus' death death. So firstly, we look at the curses of Jesus' death. If we were to ask ourselves fundamentally so, what is the crucifixion? I think we can help ourselves through this passage. We could answer, of course, in many ways. I've chosen to answer in this way. The crucifixion is God's loving yet terrible giving of his Son, that his Son might become a curse in place of those who were under the curse. The crucifixion is God's loving yet terrible giving of his Son, who became a curse in place of those who were under the curse. That is to say, the crucifixion is essentially a divine act. Yes, there were human actors, but it is a divine act The crucifixion reflects the righteousness and the justice of God against sin, as well as his mercy and love towards sinners. It is a terrible act in that the giving of his son for this purpose meant that his son, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, should become a curse for us. And through that cursing, that he might redeem for himself a people, and make us spotless. When we consider the curses of the cross, we're saying that God cursed his own son, and that this was terrible. The curses of the cross, I believe, take prime position in this narrative, certainly from verses 45 to fifty. And there are at least four curses that we can observe that are placed upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, back in verse 35, we've read the cross itself is a curse. The cross is a curse. The darkness of verse 45 is also a curse. The forsakenness of verse 46 is a curse. And death itself, verse 50, is a curse. The cross the darkness, the forsakenness, and death itself. There is firstly the cursed death of the cross. There is actually a cultural aspect to this curse. 
something that would have meant something to the Romans and the Jews alike in their own setting. Crucifixion under Roman law was reserved for the most despicable of criminals. When the Jews cried out against Jesus, crucify him, crucifying, they were calling for Jesus to be treated in the most shameful, the most despicable fashion. In other words, at the cross, Jesus became the lowest of the low. But there is a theological aspect to this curse also. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. As Paul will say in Galatians, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. You see, there were other ways to be put to death. Deuteronomy 21.21 speaks of stoning. Others we see are put to death by the sword. Why was it then that the one who hung upon a tree was peculiarly and particularly cursed by God? Was there a more cursed death, at least in the Old Testament, than hanging on a tree? I think not. There was a peculiar and particular curse attached to it. Why so? I'm not certain of this answer, but I'll give it to you and you can make of it what you will. Perhaps it's because Adam broke the covenant of works by reaching out to the tree that he should not have. It seems possible that death on a tree revealed God's particular displeasure at Adam's first sin and the entry of sin into the world. Furthermore, when we think of someone hanging on a tree, what do we see? We see a public, we see a lasting reality, a dead body left open for all to see, public shame extended. You see, friends, death on the tree on the cross symbolizes the shame and disgrace and dishonor associated with the curse of Almighty God. Jesus was cursed on the tree. He was also cursed in darkness, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This is an unnatural darkness. From midday to 3 p.m., the sun at its brightest, there was darkness. Scripture is very clear that darkness is frequently associated with God's displeasure and judgment. Think of Exodus 22, verse 10, darkness over Egypt when Moses is pronouncing judgment on it. Deuteronomy 28, God says, you break my covenant, I'll bring blindness on you, such as you will be like a blind man groping around in the darkness. But more so, we see this idea of darkness being a curse in the prophets. Amos chapter 8, we read these words. And as I read this, remember who the true Israel is, the true son, Jesus Christ. God says this to Israel, the end of, has come upon my people Israel. The end. I will never again pass them by. He means I won't pass by their sins. Verse 8, shall not the land tremble on account of this? 
and everyone mourn who dwells in it. Verse 9, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Darkness at midday, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Darkness fell on the land. Darkness fell upon the people. Darkness fell upon the Romans. Darkness fell upon the Jews. But principally, darkness fell upon the Son, Jesus Christ. Above all, because he was the epicenter of God's wrath and judgment in that moment. Yes, darkness as a curse fell upon Jesus. As we've just sung by Isaac Watts, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. But more than darkness, we see he was forsaken. Verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And children, this is question one, if you're following in the outline, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've already seen last week Jesus taken outside of the city, outside of the camp, excommunicated from the people of God, as it were, to use the imagery of the Old Testament. But he's not just separated from his own people, he's separated from his father, this is the moment of greatest spiritual anguish for our Lord. We can't even begin to comprehend it. One theologian calls this unqualified desolation on the part of our Lord. Jesus was now rejected by God. Having been made sin, having stood in the place of a countless number of sinners, having borne all their sins at that moment in his body, having become unto the elect the sole focus of the righteous and perfect wrath of God. Nothing else could happen but that he was forsaken. It was necessary that he was forsaken, really and truly. Friends, Jesus did not imagine being forsaken by God. And that's reflected in the language he uses, isn't it? William Hendrickson, the commentator, notes that when he's in Gethsemane, how is he praying? He's saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What does he now say? My God, my God. He feels and he is forsaken, cursed by being forsaken. And ultimately, the curse is manifest, fourthly, in his death. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. Really? And truly. He died. The death that needed to be paid. He died, dear Christian, for your sins and for mine. Jesus, our Savior, died. 
Interestingly, he's dying at what time? It's about three in the afternoon. That's when in the temple the evening sacrifices were being begun. When they were started. Matthew doesn't tell us what he cried out. Luke tells us. He said to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Calvin applies this richly and warmly, not just to Jesus, but to us. He says this, remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included, as it were, in one bundle, all the souls of those who would believe in him, that they may be preserved along with his own soul. And really, that's the driving force of the crucifixion, isn't it? We've moved through the elements of curse to the purpose, as it were, of the crucifixion. God's loving yet terrible giving of his son that he might become a curse so he could redeem those who were under the curse. Children, that's question two. Jesus became a curse. But to what end, dear friends? Christ took the curse of the cross that we might escape the curse that was placed upon us. Christ took the curse, the humiliation, the shame, which by nature belong to us and by action belong to us, but by grace were taken by the Savior, that we would never be cursed by God again. Christ bore the darkness that you, dear Christian, might always know the light of, of God's countenance looking upon you. That though days be dark, objectively, they are never so. Friends, Christ was forsaken so that Father, Son, and Spirit should never leave you or forsake you. Christ died. That though we will physically die, as Christ says, yet shall we live and live forevermore. Friends, here we see in Christ, death has been overcome. Death has been defeated. And friends, it's a burden on you today, dear Christian, to let these words, these truths, sink down deep into your heart. That cross and darkness and forsakenness and death the curses of the covenant of works and of the broken law have been removed from you. That alienation from God has been turned into friendship. <coughs> you must know, dear friend, no matter what will happen to you in this life, and grievous things can and will happen to you, nothing can change these facts. Nothing can change these truths. Not life, not death, not nakedness, not peril, not sword, or any other thing can separate you from the love of God in the crucified Savior. Nothing can separate you. 
And dear friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus in this way, and you're not trusting him in the way that scripture calls you to, I ask you, what in the world are you trusting in? In what is your hope? If you're not trusting in Jesus, I say you've got no trust. You have no hope. You're lost. You're without hope in the world. Crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is where salvation is found. And in no one else. Believe in him. Trust in him. And it's not just the curses of the cross that we witness. We also witness the miraculous happenings that took place immediately at the point of his death. We see, secondly, the effects of Jesus' death. I'll be brief on these next two points. The effects of Jesus' death. The first thing we read, children, this is question three. We read that the temple's curtain, the curtain of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, behold, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew starts this account with the words, behold. Something amazing has just happened, he says. What goes on in verses 51 to 54 is amazing. It's staggering. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. There's two curtains in the temple, the outer and the inner. It's probably referring to the inner curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. That curtain which had the cherubim with the sword embroidered upon it. It is torn from top to bottom. What could it mean? Well, the commentator R.T. France has a very helpful statement. He says, using the flow of Matthew's gospel... Uh, looking through the logic and the theology of it, this tearing of the temple's curtain, curtain represents the end of temple ministry and a transition to the new and true temple, Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus' death signaled a new era, a new age of redemptive history, which fulfills and surpasses everything that the temple represented. All of that, thousands of years of practice, of sacrifice, of purifications, fulfilled in one moment in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he's right. In effect, the age of the temple ended with Christ's death. But scripture also takes us into a different direction, or a similar direction, really. The book of Hebrews tells us that the tearing of the curtain makes us look back to past realities and back then to present realities. We're reminded, are we not, that when Adam broke the covenant of works, what happened? He was cast out of the garden, expelled, and at the gate... There was a cherubim with a flaming sword prohibiting his entry back into the holy presence of God. That's what went onto the curtain of the tabernacle and temple. The principle is this, the unholy may not enter the holy of holies. And yet, what has happened? That barrier, that curtain is torn from top to bottom. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Hebrews 9 verse 3 says this, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse, tw- verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. When that curtain was torn from top to bottom, it symbolized that God will fully dwell in the midst of his people and his people will dwell with him in the Holy of Holies. This is the Holy of Holies right now. And friends, it'll be the Holy of Holies again at 5.30 tonight when we're called to worship, to gather to and worship the true and living God. This will be the Holy of Holies. Not out there. We have entered the most holy place by the blood of Christ Jesus. That is to say, friends, there is a purification available in the Savior, which was never really available under the sacrifices. It was always available in him as, a, as, as a, the fulfillment of types and shadows. But here God says, I have torn open the barrier that existed between me and you. Yes, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I told there was an earthquake that the earth shook, rocks were split, creation groaning, falling into turmoil at the death of its maker. The third thing we're told in verse 52 is the tombs were opened. And the tombs of the saints, those who had put their faith at that time in Christ Jesus, a real resurrection. The timing is a little bit strange. Now, what's very clear is at his death, the tombs were open. We read verse 52. The bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised instantly. And then verse 53, they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I'm not sure what to make of that, that, that difference of time between their actual resurrection and their appearance, other than to say this. At Christ's death, the power of sin and death was broken, and they were raised there and then. And yet their appearance, not to go before their Lord in glory, their appearance to their friends was when? After he had been raised. Christ Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection. It's a blessed picture, friends, of the power of of sin and death broken in us now, and a guarantee of what is to come in the life to come, the fullness of bodily resurrection. And then fourthly, there's the confession of the centurion, verse 54. It says that when they saw what happened, this Roman centurion was filled with awe, and he confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. Of God, What do we make of this? No doubt he'd already heard the Jews deriding Jesus back in verse 39 and 42. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. 
Maybe he was present at Pilate's trial of him, where they likewise mocked him again. Either way, he saw this. He saw how Jesus conducted himself on the cross. He heard his last words, not recorded in Matthew's gospel, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he saw the extraordinary phenomena of the earthquake and the darkness. And it appears, I'm not dogmatic, but it appears the Spirit worked in him. Isn't this remarkable? We see the power of sin broken in the saints in the tomb. And now we see the power of sin probably broken in a Roman centurion, a Gentile. That's to say he probably came to faith. He came to faith. His sins were moved, removed, and he was granted a righteousness before God. And that just leaves us with the last of our cast of characters. Verse 55, the mourners at Jesus' death. We're told there were also many women there looking on from a distance. This is question four, children. Many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. We know that John the Apostle was also there, but he doesn't make it into Matthew's account. Some of these women are clearly at a distance from the other Gospels. We know that uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene were at the foot of the cross with the beloved disciple. We're told that these women had come with Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Why is it that Matthew only mentions women? Why is it that John, the beloved disciple, is excluded from Matthew's account? Why are we told that only women followed him from Galilee? Why are we told that only women had ministered to him on the way? It's not the case that these women showed the greatest devotion to their Lord. Of all the disciples save John, these women showed the greatest love the greatest commitment, the greatest devotion to our Lord, so much so that to them was granted to be the most reliable witnesses, A, to his death, and then secondly, to his resurrection. Isn't that staggering? A wonderful reward for these women who were so bound to the heart of Christ. They so loved him. They were prepared to stand with him in his moment of reproach. When all of his other disciples had been scattered and were gone, they were there, loving their Savior to the last. I think we can take two things from this very briefly. These women were never going to be called to be officers in the church of Jesus Christ. They were never called to be rulers of some kind or another or spearheading the faith of the early church, yet that's precisely what they were. <coughs> Those at the forefront of Christianity, because here we see a true, sincere, loving, and devoted faith. They're devoted even to the point of being identified with Jesus in the moment of his own death, that which could have brought about their own death. They said, we will stand with our Savior. We will stand with our Lord. 
They were willing to count the cost. Willing to follow their saviour. Willing to be associated with him in his most shameful moment. I think there ought to be a lesson for us in that also. I don't know if, don't know if many of you are starstruck by the great and the good of the Christian church today. There is a fascination through, throughout the world, I think, but particularly in this country, with those who are names, the great names of the Christian faith, those who are alive today. I think these women dismantle that idea before our very eyes. Friend, it's not the great and good, so to speak, of the church who preach at the same conferences, who write the great books and so on and so forth. These are not the great and good of the church. I'm not saying anything negative about those men. But here we have a picture of what is great and good. Their faith carried them to the foot of the cross because they were so devoted to Jesus. And friends, as we close, we say, so it ought to be with us. If our reproach has truly been removed from us and laid upon our Savior, if we've known the Lord in this remarkable saving way, if we know the one who has become a curse for us, ought we not to give our lives to him unreservedly? There's not a single excuse to hold back. Ought we not to give our time to him, our worship to him, our devotion to him, our service, our hearts, our tears, our loves? It's not office or reputation or any such thing that constitutes true saving faith. It's just true saving faith that constitutes true saving faith. It's true faith, sincere faith, that unites us to the Savior. And if you are saved, dear friend, will you not give your all to the one who saved you? Will you not be devoted to him as he was devoted to you? Let's pray. <clears throat> Work in us, great God, that which is pleasing in your sight. We are humbled by our Savior's love to us. We ask that you give us the faith that, Lord God, we might indeed respond as we ought. Bless us now as we come to your table, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.